was talking a minute ago, how blessed it is just to be in the house of the Lord, to pray together and to sing together. You know, I'm, if we went home right now, I'm not going to say I'd be perfectly satisfied, but it's just great to be together to fellowship with the Lord's people. You know, I, I got to preach, so we're going to have to do that. Um, but, you know, one of these days, I'm thinking maybe in the fall, we're going to plan a service that's going to be focused around a singspiration. We're just going to come and sing songs to the Lord together, and I'll have a real short challenge, less than an hour that day. So, but that'll, we, we got to keep that in mind. But anyway, it's just been a blessing to be able to sing together and pray together so far today. But we are going to look at God's Word. So if you want to go to Revelation chapter 11 today, we're going to finish this section of Revelation. We're not going to finish this chapter, but we're going to finish the section of Revelation where we are in the course of events as we've been going through Revelation. We've gone through the seven seals. We've gone through six of the seven uh, trumpet judgments. We're at the pause between the sixth and seventh trumpet, and that began in chapter 10 and in chapter 11. And those pauses are to kind of encourage God's people, help us to know, God wants us to know that he's still working behind the scenes, that he's still protecting us, he's still providing for us, he's going to deliver us. And especially in this time of the tribulation, God's people are under severe persecution. And they are going through some of the worst conditions that earth has ever experienced, and yet God is still their God, and God will still be there for them. And he wants us to know that too today. So we're going to read chapter 11 about the two witnesses. The two witnesses are for a specific purpose in this period, and we'll see that today as we find out more about them. So if you want to start at verse 3, we're going to start there in chapter 11 of Revelation. The Bible says, I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand, two hundred, and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people... And kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in the graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them, and make merry, and shall send gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven, saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. In the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. Let's stop there for today. And we're going to have a word of prayer, and then we'll look at this passage as the Lord teaches us. Father, I thank you again for your word. And now as we 
embark upon this, this passage about the two witnesses and you're working through them in the end times, Lord, we ask that you would just give us uh, understanding. Lord, give me utterance that I might be able to proclaim your truth. I pray that you would fill us all with your spirit so that we might learn together, that we may be challenged by your word, that we can find principles and apply them in our lives as we seek to, to serve you each day. And so, Lord, just have your way and accomplish your work in this time that we have together. And we thank you for what you're going to do. Use your word in a mighty way and just accomplish your purpose now, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. As I said, at this point in Revelation, we have gotten all the way through six of the seven trumpet judgments. Remember, the seven trumpet judgments came out of the seventh seal that Christ opened in the, the book, which was the, the book of God's judgment upon the earth as he reclaims the authority over the earth. And as we get to chapters 10 and 11, we're in this pause between the sixth and seventh trumpet judgment. And so as we saw a pause between the sixth and seventh seal, remember that pause there, that there was a pause that God wanted to show his people that he's still concerned, he's still thinking about them, he still has a plan, he's still protecting them. We saw his preservation, preservation, I'm sorry, and deliverance of God's people between the sixth and seventh seal. That was the introduction of the 144,000 witnesses that God had sealed in their foreheads. No one could touch them because they were proclaiming the word of God. They were his testimony in the earth, and so God protected them. And then we were introduced to the martyrs under the altar and their prayer of God for deliverance, actually for a vengeance upon their enemies, the people who had killed them. And yet we saw even in their deaths that God had delivered them from all the torment on the earth. So God is delivering his people. And here we come to this uh, 11th chapter of Revelation, this pause between the 6th and 7th trumpets. And again, God is showing his protection and deliverance and redemption of his people. Before, we saw the redemption of the martyrs, the saints, the believers who will come to Christ during the tribulation period. Here, we see a very specific group in that God has promised to redeem his nation Israel. That is what this pause focuses on, his deliverance of his people Israel. Now, not all Israel who enter the tribulation, not all Jews who enter that period are going to be saved, are going to be delivered from the torment, from the judgment But God says, there will be a remnant that I will deliver. And here is his uh, avenue and his uh, instrument that he uses in bringing the truth to that remnant of Israel that he will deliver at the end of the tribulation period. That's what these two witnesses are about. That's actually what we saw in the beginning of chapter 11, the first two verses last week when we looked at John as he measured the temple. Remember, he was not measuring a a distance as far as being in numbers. He was measuring what God has claimed for his own. And it was God's people that he was looking at, the worshipers as they come to the temple, the true worshipers of God that God is going to reclaim in the end. Jews worship at the temple, and so it focused on the Jewish people who are true worshipers of God. And yet they're still missing that link to the Messiah. And here he's going to redeem them through these two witnesses. God's promise is going to be fulfilled to redeem Israel through these witnesses at this specific time. 
So I want to look at these two witnesses today. I, we've been kind of teasing you about these two guys for a couple weeks now, and today we finally arrive here, and we're going to see more about them. So it starts in verse 3, and it says, I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. First, I want to look at their power. The power for these two witnesses to accomplish this ministry especially in the conditions that they are embarking upon this mission in during the tribulation period, is God's power. It is not in their own power. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, right before Christ goes to heaven, he has his apostles gathered there, and he says to them, I will give you power. You're going to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you, and you will receive power, and you shall be my witnesses. See, for us to be witnesses, for anybody to be witnesses, it has to be in the power of God. We can't go and be witnesses of Jesus Christ just because we are good Christians, just because we go to church and read our Bible regularly. If we do not rely on the power of God to do his calling for us as being witnesses in this world, we will fail in that. And we see a really good example here in these two witnesses that God calls during the tribulation period. They do not witness in their own power. They witness in the power of God. It's not because they're great men or great prophets or great Christians that God can use them to fulfill this mission. It's because they have a great God who empowers them to do it. And we have to remember that principle. We can do nothing for the Lord, without his strength. That's why Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Not I can do all things because I'm a good Christian, or even I can do all things because I trust in God. It is I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Every ounce of strength in order to do God's will that we have comes from God, and we have to rely on him in that. We actually saw that this morning in our Sunday school lesson about Abijah. Many of you may maybe not even remember Abijah, the king of Judah. They went against Israel in war. And in that lesson we saw Abijah prevailed, even though he had far less men on his side, that he prevailed in battle because he relied on God. So our strength comes from God. And these two witnesses, their strength comes from God. Now, there's two witnesses for a reason, okay? Remember when Jesus commissioned the disciples initially while he was still on earth, and he said, I want you to go out two by two and testify of the truth that I've taught you. And then before he went to heaven, he again sent them out two by two. He said, I want you to go two by two. And here God sends two witnesses. Why is this uh, emphasis on the number two? Why has there be two people? Well, it actually comes from the law. In the law, God told Israel that to verify the truth of something, you need two witnesses. And so God sends these two witnesses during the tribulation to verify the truth of their message. Now, the truth of their message is the gospel, the true messiahship of Jesus Christ, and that judgment is coming upon the earth at this moment because of people's sin. It comes from the hand of God. That's their message. And basically, they're preaching the same thing that John was, was preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, John the Baptist was preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God was at hand, just before Jesus entered into his ministry. And if we want to 
take it literally, the kingdom of God was still about 2,000 or more years away because we haven't gotten there yet. We haven't seen the kingdom of God when Christ sets up his earthly kingdom on the earth. But the kingdom of God is also a spiritual kingdom that's embodied in believers. And so John the Baptist was saying that period when Christ will send his Holy Spirit to embody believers where we're baptized into the body of Christ is about to begin. That kingdom was about to begin in the church. But the kingdom of God literally on the earth is about to happen in the end times, at the end of the tribulation period. And so the message of these two witnesses is the kingdom of God literally is at hand. It's about to happen within a matter of weeks, probably, from this point. So God is using these two witnesses to testify the truth of their message. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, God told Israel, At the mouth of two witnesses, or three witnesses, shall he that is worthy of death be put to death, but at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. You needed two. Deuteronomy 19, 15, he says, One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin, in any sin that he sinneth. At the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. So this is a principle that God established in the law. Now we say, well, the law has been fulfilled. We don't follow the law anymore. Okay, well, then let's take Jesus' words. Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus was teaching his disciples a principle of admonishing and correcting one another. And he says, but if he will not hear thee, in other words, you go to him yourself. If you have aught against a brother, Jesus said, you go to him and you, you exhort him. But he will, if he will not hear you, Jesus says in Matthew 18, 16, then take with thee one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. So Jesus Christ continued that principle even into the church. And that's how we practice church discipline, actually. When someone is in sin and a brother goes to him and admonishes him and he rejects that admonishment, then we are to take two or three others who know personally, who have testified of that sin. They know and have seen it. And we go and admonish him again in the mouth of two or three witnesses. And then Jesus says, if you won't receive that admonishment, then you take it to the church. And then the church has to take that matter up as a whole. But that principle of two witnesses, God carries out even here in the tribulation to verify the truth of their message. They are both preaching the same thing. So there's two witnesses, and he says they will prophesy 1,260 days. Now, if you count 1,260 days in the Jewish calendar, which relies on a 30-day month, that's exactly three and a half years. And I've had people come to me and say, well, 1,260 days, that doesn't come out to three and a half years exactly because we're short about 15 or 16 days. Well, that's because we're using our our Roman calendar, Gregorian calendar that we use today. The Jews use a 30-day calendar. And that's where this 1,260 days comes from. That equals exactly three and a half years. Now, I have to make a correction, okay? And here is where I'm going to admit to be human, and I'm wrong sometimes. I told you last week that my belief or my leaning was that the ministry of these two witnesses, the bulk of it occurred in the first half. After further study, I have to fix that and change that, okay? Because looking at it, I, I don't see that that's actually possible. As I prayed and studied about it this week, it looks like their ministry may begin 
at the end of the first half, but it continues through the rest of the second half of the tribulation period. And I'll explain that as we go through this, okay? But it's three and a half years, okay? In the first three and a half years, God has already ordained 144,000 witnesses that are on the earth proclaiming the truth of God. Now, they're not just proclaiming to Jews, although that's their focus, because they're Jews. But God is using these 144,000 witnesses to bring many people to him, Jews and Gentiles, in this period. But now, God is in the sixth and seventh trumpets. He pauses, and this focus of this pause, as I said, is to the Jews specifically, to reinforce his promise of redemption for the Jewish people as a whole. And at, at the sixth uh, trumpet, we're well into the second half of the tribulation as far as a time period is concerned. And so even though as we looked at John measuring the temple last week, that had to be done kind of at the end of the first three and a half years because the Jews were still worshiping in the temple before Antichrist had defiled it and chased them out. Okay? But we see the extension of that into this next three and a half years, and God uses these two witnesses specifically to bring that message and bring attention to the Jewish people about God's promise, about his redemption. Here's their message of redemption to them. And so as through this ministry of these two witnesses, as you draw close to the end of the tribulation period, whatever Jews have survived up to that point when the tribulation ends and have not yet believed, they will all be converted and brought to Christ. The Bible tells us that. That is God's promise of the redemption of the Jewish people at that point. And he uses these two witnesses to do that. So I believe after further study and prayer that this represents the last three and a half years, the bulk of it, after the Antichrist defiles the temple and then begins to persecute and kills Jews, driving them, against, uh, driving them out of the temple and out of their land. And so the Jews that had missed the Messiah the first time, they didn't realize Jesus Christ came and he was the Messiah the first time as well. They will be brought to that truth and that understanding through the testimony, not just of the 144,000, but of these two witnesses specifically. And we'll look at why that's or how that's going to be accomplished in who these people are. Okay, but this is. The repentance of the Jews, the the redemption of the Jews at the end of the tribulation period. And this is their testimony. Uh, The two witnesses will testify, will ministry for for three and a half years. And it says they're clothed in sackcloth. Now, sackcloth is a rough, heavy cloth that people wore back in Bible times to signify mourning. They were sad. They were grieving. They would put it on um, when someone died sometimes. But many times in Scripture, what you see is that people put on sackcloth when they're grieving over sin. And that's exactly what these two witnesses are representing here. It's not grief over their own sin, necessarily. And they're not saying that they're not sinners, but it's grief over the sin of Israel specifically and generally just the sinful situation and condition of the world as a whole at this point. Now remember... The Holy Spirit now has had his hand of restraint off of evil. Demons have already been released on the earth, not just to torment people, but to release evil among men. Okay, And the worst of man is now on full display in the world, and now these two witnesses appear. And to see that 
would grieve any true believer and any minister of God. And that's what this sackcloth represents. There's some examples in the Old Testament of people wearing sackcloth. Jacob wore sackcloth when he thought Joseph had been killed because he was in deep grief. David wore sackcloth after God sent a plague and killed many Israelites, after David took a census in Israel um, in, in uh, contrary to God's plan. So David grieved that he had caused this plague among Israel. King Hezekiah wore sackcloth. When Jerusalem was attacked, he was grieving that it seemed like they were going to lose their city. God's people were going to be conquered. And so he put on sackcloth and went before the Lord. And then others include Job, Isaiah, Daniel, just among others that wore sackcloth. Because the grief about sin and about the conditions and the, the consequences of sin. And that's what all of these people are grieving at. And that's exactly what we see with these two witnesses. Now, in verse 4, we get to their identity, in a way, okay? Verse 4 says that these are two olive trees. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Now, if you didn't know any of the rest of the Bible, you might look at that and go, that is kind of weird. He calls them olive trees. There's not really a whole lot of reference to olive trees. We know there's olive trees in the Mideast. Israel has a lot of olive trees. Olives and olive oil are one of the main products that are produced there. But this has nothing to do with commerce or what's popular as far as the products made in this area. This goes directly back to Zechariah chapter 4. Because in Zechariah, the book of Zechariah, we have for us a series of visions that God gave the prophet Zechariah just before the people of Israel went back from captivity in Persia to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And then during that period, Zechariah received a whole series of visions as the people returned and started rebuilding the temple of God after coming out of captivity in Babylon. And so Zechariah has a vision in chapter 4, and I'm going to read that for you because I want you to understand what this, is, uh, this reference here is talking about. In uh, Revelation chapter 11, when he says these two witnesses in the end times are the two olive trees. And here's the vision in Zechariah. The angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that waketh out of sleep. And he said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick of all gold, with a bowl upon the top of it, and seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to seven lamps which are upon the top thereof. So Zechariah sees this candlestick, the one that they use in the temple, seven branches, and it has two tubes coming into it that supply oil. And in verse 3 of chapter 4, he says, and two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl and the other upon the left side thereof. And, he, and so I answered and spake to the angel who talked with me, and I said, what are these things, my Lord? And the angel that talked with me answered and said, knowest thou not what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he answered and spake to me, saying, This be the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? Thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, his hand shall also finish it, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice, and they shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord, which run to and fro through the whole earth. And then I answered and said unto him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? 
And I answered again and said unto him, What be these two olive branches, which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered me and said, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. That's the vision that Zechariah received. And for Zechariah, God gave that vision at a time in Israel's history when they needed kind of a boost to get going doing the work of God. They had just returned from captivity in in Babylon under the rule of Cyrus the Great of Persia, who had just conquered Babylon. And now they had been given permission to rebuild the temple. But hardly anybody went back. Everybody got comfortable in their captivity, and they didn't want to leave. And so God, through Zechariah, gives them this vision and said, I've raised up two men, Zerubbabel, who you heard about in that vision. He was the governor that was appointed over Jerusalem, and he was kind of going to be kind of a catalyst to get this project moving. The other was Joshua, not the Joshua of the early Old Testament, you know, who fought the battles for Israel, but this is Joshua the high priest, who was the high priest at the time of Israel's return, who was in charge, really, of, under Zerubbabel, of rebuilding the temple. And so God basically set aside these two men, Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest, and said, these are my two olive trees. Through them, I am going to channel God's spirit to empower Israel to become the light that they're supposed to be in the world again. And we start by rebuilding the temple. And so that's the vision that Zechariah receives. So when we go back to Revelation chapter 11, we see this reference again in verse 4. These are the two olive trees. And it's a direct reference to that vision of Zechariah. And what God's saying in this period of time is that he has raised up two people, two prophets of his, to again channel the Spirit of God through to the people of God so that they can again become the light of truth to the world and accomplish the task that God has for them. And these two witnesses now are the final fulfillment of these two olive trees of Zechariah's prophecy. I remember I told you many prophecies in the Old Testament have a short-term fulfillment and a long-term fulfillment. Zerubbabel and Joshua were the short-term fulfillment in Israel's history. These two witnesses are the, are the long-term fulfillment in the end times of that prophecy of Zechariah. So it's through these people, through these two witnesses, that God will empower Israel, that God will redeem Israel, and again bring unto them and through them the light of Jesus Christ to the world. Okay, And that's why in that vision we have that famous verse, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And we know, again, everything comes by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And that's what these two witnesses represent. So we have this fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy right here. And God calls these two witnesses his two olive trees. And then he also says the two candlesticks. Basically, they are lights to the nation of Israel. They are bringing the truth to the nation of Israel again so that they can be redeemed. Now, here's the big question. Who are they exactly? Okay, and I kind of gave you a teaser last week. Now, here's my answer. We don't know. The Bible doesn't say exactly who they are. It doesn't give us their names. It doesn't describe them other than what we have here in Revelation. 
So I can't be certain about who they are. But we can take an educated guess, and there's many people who have tried to guess the identity of these. Many, as I said last week, think that these are Elijah and Enoch. And just off you know, common sense, if you know anything about Scripture, we know Elijah and Enoch did not die natural deaths. Elijah was taken up in a chariot of fire alive from the earth right directly into heaven. Enoch, Genesis tells us, was translated from earth to heaven without dying. So those two have not died physically. And so many people believe, well, the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. It says that in Hebrews. And so we figure, well, these two haven't died, so they're going to come back and we'll see in just a moment. Then they die. So finally they meet their physical death and then they go to heaven in glorified bodies as after that resurrection. So that's some people's opinion. Others speculate that they are Elijah and Moses. Now, the Bible uh, prophesies that Elijah would return. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, God says this through the prophet Malachi, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That sounds like what's happening here with his two witnesses. And it says, He shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. That sounds like God's redeeming his people. And so Elijah is very instrumental in that. So just from Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, I mean, one very good educated guess is that one of these witnesses is probably Elijah. There's more proof to that. Okay, but I want to look at the next couple of verses to add more substance to our search for the identity of these two witnesses. Okay, and I said, some think it's Elijah and Enoch, some think it's Elijah and Moses. But let's look at the miracles that happen that come from these two witnesses that maybe give us some indication of who they might be as well. In verses 5 and 6, the Bible says, If any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth, and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. So anyone who comes to stop these witnesses from testifying are burned up by fire. Not fire that falls down from heaven, but fire that comes out of their mouths. I don't know that we've ever seen anything like this as far as a person in Scripture. We'll see at the end of the tribulation period when Christ comes back, a sword comes out of his mouth and destroys his enemies, but not fire. And so God gives these men supernatural power. Now, we're not talking about angels. We're not talking about some alien beings. We're talking about human men here. Now, think about the impact that human men who could breathe out fire to destroy their enemies would have. I mean, it's one thing if you come out with a flamethrower or, you know, a a bazooka or even an atomic bomb. Okay, those are intimidating weapons. These two don't have any man-made weapons. God has given them this supernatural protection that they can breathe fire out of their mouths to burn up anybody that comes against them. That's the power of God. God uses fire many times in Scripture to devour his enemies. In Leviticus chapter 10, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, very soon after the initiation of their service in the temple, the Bible says they brought strange fire before the Lord. And the fire of God came out of the altar and consumed them right there in the sight of all the people because they brought strange fire. They did not worship God's way, and so God killed them. And then God told Aaron, 
who just watched his sons die. He said, I don't want you to grieve. I don't want you to mourn. I want you to get back to work and do it the way I told you to do it. So God consumed them with fire because they disobeyed him. In Numbers chapter 11, verses 1, it says, And when the people complained, talking about Israel, when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, and the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. God sent fire to burn up complainers. Aren't you glad he doesn't do that today? Okay, we'd all be in trouble. But he he burned them up. Numbers chapter 6, God sent fire to burn up those that followed in the rebellion of Korah. After Korah rebelled against the leadership that God had set in place, remember Korah and his family and his tent and his belongings, the earth opened up and swallowed him. But there were 250 men who brought incense before the Lord that were followers of Korah. And God said to Moses and Aaron, stand back, put them by themselves, and then God's fire came down and burned up those 250 men. So God used his fire to destroy his enemies, and here God gives these witnesses the power of breathing fire out of their mouths to consume their enemies. And they are immune, they are immortal, really, until God is done with them. No one can come up against them. Now, there's some truth in that for us, okay? The same God that protected these two men, or that will protect these two men, and give them this supernatural power is the God that protects us. And the truth of the matter is, in your life, you are immortal until God's done with you. Now, God may use you to accomplish something in his life if we are willing to be used, okay? And no one can stop us from, or no one can take us out, and no one can kill us until God is done using us because we are his instrument in his hand. The power that we minister with comes from God. And so literally, we are immortal until God is done with us. Now, there is the possibility that as a believer, we just rebel against God and don't want to do what he wants us to do. And then eventually, God will say, well, if, I'm not, if you're not going to let me use you, then there's no reason having you on this earth. And he may just take us out of this earth. But in either case, God is done with us at that point. And nothing can happen to us until God says, it's time for you to go. And that's how it is with these two witnesses. They are immortal. God has given them this supernatural protection of breathing fire out of their mouths to consume their enemies, to keep them alive on the earth until he's done with them. Now, here we have a little bit of a hint about who one of these witnesses is, because can we imagine or think about who else called fire down from God to consume their enemies? Remember Elijah on Mount Carmel in the battle or the the challenge against the prophets of Baal, For hours, the prophets of Baal danced around and cut themselves and called on Baal to receive their sacrifice, and nothing happened. And then Joshua, then Elijah put the offering on the altar with the wood, and he said, okay, I want you to start bringing water and start dumping it on the altar. And they drenched the altar, they drenched the sacrifice, they drenched the wood, and there was a trench around the altar where the water gathered. And then Elijah knelt down and prayed and asked God to send fire. And fire came out of heaven and burned up the sacrifice and burned up the wood and burned up the stones and burned up the water. And Elijah, through God's power, showed who the true God was. And so in a sense, we have kind of a a hint. Here we have a prophet who can call fire out from God to, to destroy his enemies. 
But that's not the only thing they have. Look at verse 5, if, I'm sorry, verse 6. If he, they, these have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. So they can stop the rain. And it says that they stopped the rain in the days of their prophecy. That's three and a half years. Now, remember when we started the trumpets, in some of these trumpet judgments, there were asteroids that came from the earth. Some fell into the oceans and destroyed the sea life and destroyed a third of the ships. Some fell into the mountains and destroyed or contaminated a third of the fresh water. And here, these prophets can stop the rain for three and a half years. So now we have a third of the drinking and usable water on the earth that's contaminated, and now these two prophets show up, and they pray and ask God to stop the rain. And so the amount of water that's available for people to use becomes even less. Now we have a drought caused directly by these two witnesses. Now, if you were an unsafe person at this point, in the tribulation, and you're struggling to get by, and these two guys come up and say, you're sinful, you need to repent and turn to the Lord, and until you do, we're going to cause the rain to stop. How would you feel about them? You'd want them gone. And that's why God protected them. But they are able to stop the rain. Now Elijah, again, right after his challenge with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, He prayed to God to send the rain. Why would he do that? Because if you go back in history, three and a half years before, he stood before Ahab and said, you're sinning before God, you're leading the people in sin, and God is going to shut up the rain of heaven until you repent. And that drought lasted three and a half years until that challenge on the top of Mount Carmel. And at the end of that challenge, Elijah knelt down and prayed and said, okay, Lord, send the rain again, and he did. So Elijah, we've already seen, had power to call fire down from heaven. He has power from God to pray and ask God to stop the rain, and it's exactly what's happening here with these two witnesses. They are able to stop the rain and cause drought for three and a half years. The second part of verse 6 says, And they have power over waters to turn them to blood. Great, we already have a drought. One-third of the fresh water is contaminated. There's less water for us to drink, and now the prophets are turning the water to blood. Can you imagine why people don't like them? Now, here again, there's a clue. Is there another prophet that we can think of that turned water to blood? Moses in Egypt. That was one of the plagues. Moses touched the Nile River. The Nile River turned to blood. Okay? So there's a precedent for this. You're kind of getting the idea. I'm leaning toward Moses, not Enoch. I think it's Elijah and Moses, just my opinion. But these prophets are given power by God to turn the water to blood. Again, to show God's judgment against sin. Next, now we're not done yet, okay? And it says at the end of verse 6, And to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Okay, you've destroyed the water, and now you're going to send plagues? in addition to all of this other stuff happening in God's judgment? This is in addition, by the way, to all the things that we've seen in God's judgment that came out of the seven seals and that came out of the six trumpet judgments that we've seen so far. Now these two guys are stopping the rain, and they're turning the water to blood, and they're sending plagues. Man, if I was one of these people that was still alive, I would hate these guys. 
And they will. They will hate them. Who else was involved in bringing plagues against the enemies of God? Moses in Egypt. The ten plagues, right? God used those as judgment against Pharaoh because he rebelled. He, he would not let God's people go, and God sent those ten plagues. So what we see is fire from God to destroy his enemies, Elijah. We have shutting up the rain for three and a half years, again, Elijah. We have turning water to blood, Moses. We have plagues, Moses, as he did in Egypt. Now, it's not them doing it, I know. It's God. But God uses these two people as his instruments to bring this upon the earth. And God says they can do it as often as they want. I'm giving them free reign. They have the judgment. If they want to send a plague now to these people, they can. And the people hate them for it. So through these miracles that God allows them to do, we see possibly the identity of these two witnesses, Elijah and Moses. Now, the people who are adamant about Enoch will say, well, wait a minute, Moses died. What about the prophecy, it's appointed unto man, or the, the truth, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. Hebrews 6 says that. That's a truth, right? Well, at this point in history, is it a universal truth? Because we're in the tribulation period, and we just had millions of Christians raptured to heaven without dying. That's not a universal standard anymore. They didn't die. They went to heaven. And so it doesn't have to be Enoch just because he didn't die. I think it's Moses because of the plagues. And Moses and Elijah showed up at the transfiguration of Christ. Remember, Christ was on earth. He had just a select few of his disciples with him on top of the mountain. And all of a sudden, he lifted up off the ground and he glowed. And Elijah and Moses appeared beside him. And Peter says, hey, we should build a tabernacle right here in worship. And Christ said, no, it's not time yet. But it was Elijah and Moses who appeared at his transfiguration, which was a preview to his second coming. You see the picture? One more reason I think that it's Elijah and Moses and not Enoch. These two witnesses are to sent to proclaim the truth specifically to Israel. For their repentance, for their redemption. The remnant of Israel is going to be saved through their testimony. Israel's Bible, even at this point, but even today, contains just the Old Testament. They call it the Tanakh. Okay? And I'm not going to try to explain that. The Tanakh is actually a word that's made up of three different words. It's a Hebrew word for the law, the Torah, that's the T-A. There's a Hebrew word for the prophets, and I don't know what that is, okay, because I can't pronounce it. I don't know Hebrew that well, but it, the N-A represents the, the prophets. And then there's the writings. That's things like the Song of Solomon, Psalms, uh, those books, the book of Job, okay? And that is another Hebrew word that starts with, or that has this K-H, if you know how to spell Tanakh. And so Tanakh is the combination of letters that shows these three parts of the Bible for them, the law, the prophets, and the writings. The law and the prophets were direct revelations from God about how they were supposed to live. The writings were other things that God gave them about their history, about things in life. So the law and the prophets was what Israel held to as God's absolute truth for their lives. 
In fact, Jesus referred to the law and the prophets several times in his ministry when he wanted to quote God's word to to Israel. And he said, don't you remember the law and the prophets say this? Don't you hold to the law and the prophets? These two witnesses, if they are Elijah and Moses, represent literally the law and the prophets. Moses brought the law to Israel from God. He represented literally the prophet of the law. Elijah was considered to be kind of the exemplary, the, 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 the uh, epitome of Israel's prophets. And, and you can read through his history and the miracles that he did and the things that he did. And he went to heaven without dying. And so they looked at him as kind of a special prophet. He represented the prophets for Israel. And if you were going to pick two people in Israel's history that would be most influential in bringing the truth of God back to Israel, why not Moses and Elijah, who they would listen to? Okay? So with all of that, we don't know who they are. (laughs) The Bible doesn't tell us. That's my guess. I can't be adamant about it. It could be two people we've never seen before. We don't even know their names, but that's what I speculate. So we're still just guessing at their names, but they are God's chosen people at that point, his two witnesses, to bring the message of God to them. In verses 7 through 10, we're going to pick up our pace. We see the martyrdom. When they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, shall overcome them and kill them, and their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So after they finish their mission, when their mission is done, and God makes sure we understand that, it's not just some random time or, oh, look, eventually the Antichrist finally is able to kill them. No, God says when their ministry is finished, when they have completed their task and God is done using them for his purpose, then the beast that comes out of the pit makes war against them and overcomes them and kills them. God allowed it. To happen. It wasn't just that finally Satan got victory. It was that God was finished with these witnesses. They fulfilled their purpose. And so God allowed or used the attacks of the Antichrist to end their life. God is still in control. Even when Satan's enemies are attacking and even when it seems like Satan's enemies are winning, God is still in control. And he's in control here even of these deaths. Now I want you to think again, as I mentioned, about the people on earth and their attitude toward these witnesses. And for three and a half years we've been trying to get rid of them and everybody who tries to do something against them gets killed. We cannot stop these two guys. And we are getting toward the end of the tribulation period at this point, almost at the very end actually. And then the Bible says, this beast that ascends out of the pit makes war and kills them. Now, here's the first reference in Revelation to this beast out of the pit that we call the Antichrist. Okay? We've already seen beasts that come out of a pit. They are the demons of hell. They are the demons that God had bound in the abyss until the day of judgment. We are at the day of judgment. And here is a special demon that God reserved for this specific purpose 
to embody and possess the Antichrist to accomplish God's purpose in having the Antichrist on the earth. Now, remember, in the first half of the tribulation, the Antichrist orchestrates false peace in the world, not just with Egypt, Egypt, not just with Israel. Um, He orchestrates a, a peace treaty with Israel for seven years, and then Daniel says that he breaks it three and a half years into it. Okay? But the first half of the tribulation, the Antichrist is held up as the Messiah because he brings this peace on the earth. He helps people. He kind of brings everyone together after the chaos of the rapture. And then all of these judgments start happening, and he still is there to bring people together. But both Daniel and Revelation allude to the fact that at some point in the mid-tribulation, actually at the midpoint of the tribulation, the Antichrist receives a mortal wound. We'll see that in Revelation 13. A mortal wound means he died. He's killed. But as you keep reading in Revelation, the Antichrist comes back to life. Now, here's my belief in putting these pieces together. I believe at the midpoint of the tribulation, somehow the Antichrist is killed, and God raises up this demon from hell, and he possesses the dead body of the Antichrist and brings him back to life. And you can see how the people on earth think he's really the true Messiah. A dead leader comes back to life. See, Satan is in the business of counterfeiting God's miracles and wonders. And here's one of them. And from that point, the, demon, the Antichrist then is no longer a peaceful person. Now he's controlled totally by a demon of Satan. And that's when he turns against Israel. That's when he defiles the temple. That's when he starts killing people left and right who won't follow him. That's when he has almost supernatural power to accomplish his purpose on the earth. And these two witnesses now become his primary target. But for three and a half years, they resist his attempts to kill him, even though he's empowered by Satan. And finally, when their testimony is done, God allows the Antichrist to kill them. And then he says, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city for three and a half days. Now, in ancient cultures, when a, a country came in and conquered another country they would take the leaders and as they killed them they would just let them lay there it was to dishonor their enemies they wouldn't let them have a funeral they wouldn't bury them they wouldn't show respect to the enemy so they would let them lay there for three and a half days well for multiple time periods it doesn't matter but here the bible says they let them lay there the bodies of these witnesses for three and a half days in the great city now the great city here is jerusalem Because it describes it spiritually, it's called Sodom and Egypt. Now, Sodom and Egypt represent the most vile wickedness throughout history. Egypt, remember, is where God's people were enslaved and were taught idolatry. That's where they learned it. So Egypt is the symbol of rebellion against God. Pharaoh, okay, the plagues, all of that. We know that. God conquered Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. So Egypt represents the, the, the uh, evil and the wickedness of the world. Sodom, I mean, I don't have to explain that one. We know about Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, probably the most perverse place on earth at that point. Now, maybe with the exception of uh, San Francisco and some other places now, I don't know. They might, Sodom may have been worse. But that shows the perversion of men's hearts And God uses Sodom and Egypt to describe 
Jerusalem, God's holy city. But he says, you've become so apostate and so perverted, you might as well be Egypt and Sodom. Jesus mourned over Jerusalem while he was on earth. And over the wickedness, in Matthew chapter 10, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that great city. Talking about Jerusalem, where the leaders of Israel were. In fact, in Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah prophesies against Israel and their wickedness. And he actually says uh, in t- Jeremiah 23, 14, Um, They are all of them, talking about Israel, unto me as Sodom and the inhabitants of Gomorrah. So God looked at Israel in their wickedness and said, you're as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. And so that's why here we have the great city of Jerusalem described as Sodom and Egypt because of the wickedness of the city. But for three and a half days, these witnesses, the dead bodies will lay in the street and all the people of the earth will see them. We, I mean, apart from what we know today, 25, 30 years ago, I remember people preaching through this passage, and they say, well, we have TV now, you know, we have TV, and everybody can watch TV. Not everybody had TV. I don't think there's a nation on earth now that doesn't have access to the internet and to cable TV and all the rest of it. I don't think there's a place on earth you can go to escape worldwide coverage, and I'm not talking yesterday's news i'm talking as it happens yes it's possible that the entire world will be able to see these three witnesses or two witnesses lying in the street for three and a half days that's the main show on tv you know how when a catastrophe happens and it seems like everything in the news and everything on tv is focused on that one catastrophe 9-11 Okay, when we had 9-11, for weeks, that was pretty much the only thing that you watched. Here it is, three and a half days, the only thing people are interested in is looking at these, th- these two guys dead in the street because finally we've gotten rid of these pests. Finally, life can get back to normal. And so they leave them there. But the party, and then, so they have a party. It says they rejoice the people rejoice over the whole earth. It's like Christmas, the way it's described here. If you, if you look at uh, verse 10, they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them, make merry, and shall send gifts one to another. Sounds like Christmas. And that's exactly what they're doing. They're rejoicing because these guys are dead. They killed, finally, these enemies, and now we're going to have this great party worldwide. Not just locally. This is a worldwide uh, ceremony. And they're all rejoicing because these two guys are dead. They're giving gifts. Uh, they had a new holiday instituted, Dead Prophets Day or Dead Witnesses Day, okay? And we're going to celebrate this. But look at verse 11. After three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. They didn't stay dead. Again, I want you to put yourself in the place of the people on earth. Now you're rejoicing over the death of these people who have brought such torment to your life. And as you stand there watching and celebrating and opening your gifts, all of a sudden they come back to life and stand up. And in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, no, here we go again, right? They're going to start preaching against my sin. They're going to start with the drought. They're going to start with the curses and the plagues. I thought we got rid of that. But they don't start preaching. 
They have great fear because these two men came back to life. But look forward. Verse 12, and they heard a great voice from heaven, not talking just about the two witnesses, talking about all the people on the earth. They heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. These witnesses come to life, and all the people are standing there flabbergasted, afraid. And then they become more afraid because as they're watching these two witnesses come back to life, they hear the voice of God call them up in their own private rapture and watch as these two guys ascend up into heaven. You talk about fear. And the worst part of that, they still don't repent. God, we saw that before. God told us that. So they have this resurrection and then immediately after they ascend to heaven, a great earthquake hits Jerusalem. Now, this is an interesting part of this because it's not just something that happened. I want to show you the impact. Verse 13, the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men 7,000, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to God. So immediately, a great earthquake hits Jerusalem, and it says a tenth of the city fell. Now, Some people have said, well, you know, this prophecy has already happened in the past. We've had all these events figuratively and spiritually. But unfortunately, we've never had an earthquake in which a tenth of Jerusalem was destroyed. It never has happened in all of history. We've had armies come in and destroy, but not an earthquake. So this is a specific event happening at this time in the tribulation period. Right after these two witnesses Ascend to heaven in the sight of everyone. This earthquake hits. A tenth of the city crumbles, city of Jerusalem, and it says 7,000 men are killed in this earthquake. Now, in the Greek, that phrase, 7,000 men, reads this way, 7,000 names of men. Why would it say names? In the Greek, what that was to show was that these were men of some significance and importance. They were status, possibly Government officials, people that the Antichrist had put in power to fulfill his plan, to carry out his wishes. And there's this station in Jerusalem, of course, because you have to persecute Jews, you have to take over the holy city to make that the important place of the Antichrist. And here he has 7,000 of his most important men gathered there, and God kills them in this earthquake. Now, these are enemies of the Jews. Because the Antichrist has turned on the Jews at this point. And if you were the Jews and you saw this earthquake, and then these 7,000 men representing the Antichrist killed, I think in my mind I would start thinking about my place and what I put my trust in and who I was calling the Messiah. Here's the impact at the end of verse 13. The remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, in some passages, it says the rest of men. But God chose this word remnant, the term in the Greek, and the way he wrote it here is a specific reference. Okay? I don't believe he's just talking about the rest of the people that were alive on the earth because he says the remnant were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, we've already read that in the rest of the tribulation period after the fifth and sixth, uh, after the sixth seal, And then after the seventh seal, and then we have the sixth trumpet judgments, men did not repent. We've already read that. The men did not repent. 
But here it says the remnant gives glory to God. That phrase, gives glory to God, is a mark of true belief. It's a mark of true repentance and turning to the Lord. And here we have a remnant that truly is afraid and turns to the Lord. And who have we been talking about this whole time as the focus of all of this activity? Israel. This, I believe, is the event that culminates the ministry of the two witnesses. The Jews have heard this testimony. They've seen all of this judgment. They've just watched two witnesses ascend to heaven. This earthquake comes and kills 7,000 men in Jerusalem whose job is to target and kill Jews. And the Jews start to realize, yeah, God is still in control. This isn't the right Messiah. And it says they give glory to God. I think this is literally the fulfillment of God's promise to redeem Israel at this point. We're at the end of the tribulation. There's probably not much time left. Days, weeks at the most. But we are at the end of the tribulation at this point in this this scenario. And here, God redeems his chosen people and all Israel is saved. This is exactly what Paul was talking about in Romans 11, verses 25 to 27. He says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Now, we've seen the fullness of the Gentiles is that time roughly from Nebuchadnezzar or from Assyria all the way up until the end of the tribulation. We're at the end of the tribulation. The time of the Gentiles is ending because right after the, the tribulation, Christ comes back and sets up his kingdom. doesn't matter about Gentile or Jew anymore. Now it's about Christ. And and Paul says, and so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn ungodliness away from Jacob. This is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. God promised that. And here we see the fulfillment of it. This is the point at which God fulfills that promise to Israel in the new covenant. Now, the New Testament, the new covenant, is not given to the church. We can read about it in Jeremiah chapter 31. It says God will give his people a new heart. He will pour his spirit into them. He will turn their hearts back to himself. Here it is happening. The church gets the fringe benefits. We're a recipient of the blessings of that covenant, but that covenant was given to Israel. We benefit because Christ came through Israel. So you see, all of history is focused on Israel and what God does through them. The church exists because Israel rejected God, and God is using the church to get their attention again, to make them jealous. The church is gone in the tribulation. The judgments happen. All of these things come about. God sends his 144,000 witnesses, and then in the last half, he sends these two special witnesses with supernatural powers to convince the Jews and show them the authority of God in their message that Jesus Christ is truly the Messiah. And all Israel is saved. That's how the tribulation ends. And we're not done. We have a little bit more to go in the tribulation. Because as we get to the end of chapter 11, we have the seventh trumpet opened. And when the seventh trumpet opens, we have seven vials or bowl judgments poured out really, 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 really quickly run on top of another. 
within a matter of days. And then Christ comes back. Okay? And that's what verse 14 says. The second woe is past. That's this sixth trumpet judgment. And then the pause. And the next, the third woe, that's the seventh trumpet judgment, will happen quickly. And that word quickly means very soon and a rapid fire order. And that's what we'll begin to see at the end of chapter 11 when we get there next week. Okay? We're going to stop there. Let's have a word of prayer as we close. Lord, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for all that you teach us. We know that some of this is hard to understand and some of it is difficult to interpret. But, Lord, you've given us the basis of truth to know that you're in charge, to know that we need to follow you, to know that you will protect us when we do your work and we trust in your power to accomplish your purpose in our lives. So, Lord, help us always to look to you for everything, to rely on you for everything, to look to you for the power through your spirit to accomplish that which you've called us to. And, Lord, thank you for your word this morning. May it continue to stand. May it continue to go forth with power to bring people to Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. We're going to close with just a couple verses of a hymn, 202. 202, I know it's late. Uh, the Bible's exciting, and I, apolo- I don't apologize. I apologize for the time, but I get passionate about the